Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our New Book Network's podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Sanji Copra, author of Coffee, The Magical Elixir, facts that will astound and perk you up. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm on top of the world. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Thank you for attending. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project about coffee. So I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I served as the faculty dean for continuing education for 12 years. I've traveled to about 105 countries. I have the most amazing family and friends. My friends are my chosen family. A friend is a gift that you give to yourself, which is what Robert Louis Stevenson said. Khalil Gibran said, friendship is a sweet responsibility, never an opportunity. Today actually happens to be my birthday, and I've received about 80 amazing, amazing emails and phone calls from my friends, and my heart expands. And they said, what are you doing to celebrate? I said, I'm actually working a little bit. Uh, It's just another day. I'm reflecting on how grateful I am for uh, your friendship. Um, There's an amazing study from Harvard. It's the longest standing study on happiness. It's still ongoing. It started a year before Hitler invaded Austria. They recruited 750 young people. 250 went to Harvard. The other 500 were from very poor and often dysfunctional families in some of the parts of Boston. Then they went to the war. They came back. They were recruited back into the study. Interviews every single day. Uh, Not sorry. Uh, Detailed questionnaires done every year. Home visits. Physical examination. EKG. Blood tests. Functional MRI. A cohort of their children. 2,000 are now being followed. Can you imagine a study that's gone on for 80 years? 
funding continued. The current principal investigator is Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's also a very interesting man. He's a Zen monk. And he's given a brilliant TED Talk on this topic. What makes a good, happy life? The longest, stand, longest standing study on adult happiness. So what happened to this group? Some four ran for the Senate. One became our president. John F. Kennedy was in that cohort. Some became teachers, doctors, accountants. Some became skidro alcoholic derelicts. Some died of suicide. And the major conclusion of the study is that loneliness is toxic. Loneliness is toxic. And your relationship and satisfaction with friends at age 50 is a better predictor of health, happiness, and longevity three decades later at age 80. So nurture your friendships. And one very good way to nurture friendships is to drink coffee <laughs> with your friend. So I was interviewed by Channel 5, ABC, award-winning Emmy, award-winning uh, producer and reporter, Nicole Estefan. And she came to my home, interviewed me, and uh, then she interviewed nine other people. And she even, at the end, puts up my coffee book. And then she said, final question, what's the best way to drink coffee? I said, Nicole, the best way to drink coffee is to drink coffee with a friend. <laughs> so I got interested in coffee about 20 years ago. I'm a liver specialist. And it said coffee is good for liver health. What? And then more and more studies. You drink two cups of regular coffee a day, 50% reduction in hospitalization and mortality from chronic liver disease. Chronic liver disease afflicts 2 billion people in the world. And then studies the low risk of head and neck cancer, breast cancer, uterine cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer, prostate cancer, liver cancer. Low risk. One of the most recent studies is mind-boggling. People with advanced metastatic colon cancer. So they have cancer of the large bowel. It's already spread to the liver, the lymph nodes, the peritoneum, who drink coffee, including decaf coffee, have improved disease-free survival. What? And dose-dependent. Better off if they drank four compared to three, three compared to two, which always adds credibility to a study. So amazing side effect uh, benefits, low risk of Alzheimer's, Parkinsonism, gout, dental cavities, death from suicide, seven cancers, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, if you already have type 2 diabetes and drink two cups, regular or decaf, 30% reduction in heart mortality. That's why I call it the magical elixir. Now, tell us the history of coffee. You talked about that a little bit in your book. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And it originated in Ethiopia. Uh, right now, the number one producer, quantity-wise, is Brazil. Then it's Vietnam. Then it's Colombia. I think some of the best coffee comes from Colombia, uh, but also Costa Rica, Mexico, India. There are so many other countries that produce coffee. But it originated in Ethiopia. And the legend is that there was a shepherd by the name of Kaldi in the village called Kaffa, K-A-F-F-A, K -A -F -F -A, hence the term coffee. And he would take his goats for pasture. And he noticed in one particular pasture, there were 
dancing and they were very frisky and animated. They had consumed these red berries of a plant. So he made a brew out of it. He really enjoyed it. There was a monastery nearby and a monk would walk every evening and he looked at Kaldi and he scolded him. He said, Kaldi, you have partaken of the devil's fruit. And he ignored him. And after a while, the monk said, let me try it. And he was able to stay up for the late night prayers. It then spread to Mysore, India, a place near Mysore, India, to many different parts of the world. But about 700 years ago, a group of well-meaning people petitioned Pope Vincent III and said, coffee is truly the devil's drink and you need to ban it. And he said, you know what? Before I ban it, let me taste it. And he really enjoyed the taste. And instead of banning it, he baptized it, <laughs> proclaiming coffee is so good, the infidels should not have exclusive use of it. And then in India, there was an amazing story of a Sufi mystic by the name of Baba Badr. And he was revered by not only the Muslims, but the Hindus and people from all the other religions. Very learned person. And he goes to a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mecca back then, hundreds of years ago, was in Yemen. And there he has his first taste of coffee. And he's blown away. He wants to bring coffee back to India. You could not bring back beans. You could bring back the ground coffee. They didn't want you to start coffee plants elsewhere outside of Yemen. And if you were caught smuggling beans, the punishment was death. So he had a long beard. He put seven beans in his beard, hid them, came to India and started coffee in India. And now India is the seventh largest producer of coffee. Quite interesting. Tell us about, do the benefits of coffee outweigh side effects? That's a great question, and we should definitely address that. So <clears throat> the side effects include heartburn. A lot of people have gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's called GERD, G-E-R-D. And if they drink coffee, including decaf coffee, they make more acid in the stomach. And if they have a weak, low esophageal valve, at the end of our food pipe, there's a valve. Its only job is to open the moment we start drinking or eating something. And as soon as that passes into the stomach, it should close. But a lot of people, this sphincter is weak. It's open most of the time. If it was a valve made by General Motors, there'd be a recall. <laughs> you know, But we get reflux. And if you have that, and I actually do, it's very, very common, then coffee will increase the amount of heartburn you get. So to counter that, you can take antacids, tamtrolids, milk of magnesia, or you can take what are called H2 blockers like Zantac, or you can take even more powerful medicines called PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, like omeprazole, lansaprazole. And that will counteract the reflux. You won't have any heartburn. So I take one of those pills every night. People who are anxious can get more anxious with coffee, although there are some people who feel less anxiety. So you should try it. Everyone is different. The third thing is it can cause a little bit of tremor and insomnia. There are many of us 
who cannot drink regular coffee after 3 or 4 p.m. <clears throat> I've had my four cups of regular coffee before that. If I go out for dinner and I drink coffee, and I don't even trust the wait person to bring me decaf, and I get regular coffee, I'll be up all night. So insomnia, heartburn, anxiety, tremor. Initially, it can cause a slight increase in blood pressure, minimal, one or two millimeters increase, and then you develop tolerance, so it doesn't go up. The benefits are so huge. And if it causes all these benefits that I listed earlier, do people who drink coffee live longer? And the answer is yes. And the first article appeared about 10 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, Premier Medical Journal. And it said, men and women who drink coffee have lower total and cause-specific mortality. Now there are five other studies published in The Lancet, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine a few years ago, a study from Europe looking at 10 European countries, total number of subjects more than half a million. They all make their coffee differently. They drink it differently. Didn't matter. Lower mortality in men and women. Same article, same issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine, another study, more than 200,000 individuals from Hawaii, different ethnic groups. Didn't matter if you were Asian American, Latino, Caucasian, lower total and cause-specific mortality. The most recent study published this month, Annals of Internal Medicine, UK Biobank, looking at thousands of patients, lower total and cause-specific mortality in men and women. And this was very interesting because they also looked at instant coffee and it had the same benefit. The only thing that's, I tell my colleagues and patients and students and friends, don't add artificial sweetener. If you don't have diabetes and you want to put sugar and milk or cream, fine. But don't add artificial sweeteners. It changes what we call the gut microbiome. In our gut, we have 100 trillion bacteria. In aggregate, they weigh three pounds. It's been called the inner bacterial rainforest, a newly discovered organ, the second human genome. And the microbiome has implications in obesity, arthritis, cancer, liver disease, cirrhosis, autism, and so on. If you take a diet drink, it changes it, and your blood sugar actually goes up higher than if you had a regular Coke. And if you have a Diet Coke or Diet Drinks, three times the risk of stroke, especially in women. So none of this artificial stuff. Enjoy natural stuff. I drink it black. It makes it easy. I don't have to add milk and, oh, the milk is cold. Now my coffee is no longer the piping hot. I don't have to look for sugar. And it takes two weeks. You know, if you stop eating sugar for two weeks, after that, you won't miss it. It's an acquired taste. It's like salt also. And a lot of the health people, including two professors at Harvard, promoted that salt is the enemy. They knew data about sugar. It never got published. You know, it was hidden. Now it's come out. So eat less sugar. Not good for us. You know, when we do these PET scans to look up for cancer, 
It's based on sugar uptake. Cancers like sugar. Tell us a story about the vocals, the vultures. About what? The vultures. The mythology about the vultures. Mythology about the vultures? Yes. No. It's in my book? Yes. What does it say? (laughs) I'll try to find it. But before, while I'm looking for that. While we're looking for that, you know, uh, I want to mention that Voltaire, the French philosopher, he had the best quotes, right? He once said, every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. So if you have a talent or a skill, you must share it. He also said, cherish those who seek the truth, but beware of those who find it. (laughs) Somebody says, I know the truth. Oh, be careful. Now, he lived to the ripe old age of 83 years when life expectancy was in the 40. And it's not proof that he lived that long because he drank a lot of coffee. But you'll be astounded how much coffee he drank. 50 to 72 cups a day. And when I mentioned this in some of my talks, people would raise their hands and say, Dr. Chopra, about what size? And I say, you know what? It doesn't matter. Even if it's a small amount, 50 adds up to a lot. Now, you talked about the hepatitis sufferers in coffee. Tell the audience more about that. So, you know, liver disease, including now the dominant chronic liver disease, it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It is seen predominantly in people with obesity and type 2 diabetes, of which we have a burgeoning epidemic all over the world. Chronic hepatitis C, chronic hepatitis B, alcoholic liver disease, hemochromatosis, where there's increased absorption of iron from the gut, gets deposited in the liver, the pancreas, the heart, the brain, can lead to cirrhosis and liver cancer. If you add up all these, two billion people in the world have chronic liver disease. 1.5 billion are estimated to have this condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the sad thing is we are seeing three-year-old children with extra fat in the liver, 16-year-olds with fat and scarring, and 25-year-olds with cirrhosis and end-stage liver failure needing a liver transplant. It's now the number one or two indication in all the transplant centers in the United States. It's either non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or alcoholic cirrhosis for liver transplantation. And the most amazing thing is that in this group of people with NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so most of them just have extra fat, then some have fat and inflammation, we call it non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and then 15% go on to develop cirrhosis. Scarring in the liver is the enemy. If you have a lot of scarring in the liver and it surrounds liver cells, islands of liver cells surrounded by scar tissue, we call it cirrhosis. And that can lead to liver cancer and liver failure and need for liver transplant. The one thing that has been documented that if individuals do, they will have the least amount of scarring in the liver is drinking coffee. Coffee drinkers have the least amount of liver fibrosis or scarring in patients with NAFL. After you adjust for 
the BMI, whether they have diabetes, control of diabetes, age, gender, everything. So pretty remarkable. And primary liver cancer, cancer arising in the liver, is the third leading cause of cancer death in the world. And in 11 countries, including Egypt, Vietnam, Somalia, China, it's the number one cause of cancer mortality. And if somebody drinks two cups of regular coffee a day, 40% reduction in dying from primary liver cancer. So pretty astounding. Now, you talk about Parkinson's disease in coffee. How can that prevent or eliminate the Parkinson's disease? It's going to be difficult. And it's not going to be that we'll eliminate it. But people who drink coffee have a much lower risk of getting Parkinson's. Once they get Parkinsonism, the studies have shown that there's no benefit of increasing your coffee consumption or drinking coffee for the first time. So if, if you have a strong family history of Parkinsonism or Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive decline, it's good to drink coffee. It's one of the things that will lower the risk. We, we have such an epidemic of Alzheimer's throughout the world. We're living longer and longer. and We're getting it. And it's very sad. But there are three or four things we can do to attenuate that risk. And the first one is physical exercise. Always comes back to exercise. Second is to drink coffee. The third is to meditate. And the fourth is to learn something new. So, you know, we were taught, remember, as kids, oh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, no, no. You can teach old dogs lots of tricks. And this phenomenon where neuronal connections grow in the brain is called neuroplasticity. So if you keep playing chess all the time or doing crossword puzzles, you'll get better at chess or crossword puzzles, but it doesn't create neuroplasticity. So it's learning something new. Try to learn a new language. Try to take up carpentry. Go take lessons in ballroom dancing. Take some lessons in golf. You're learning something new. So four things, exercise, meditation, <clears throat> coffee, learning something new. You'll lower your risk of getting Alzheimer's. Now, you talked about suicide in coffee. Talk yeah. more about that because we're seeing an epidemic. Yeah, I know. This is so sad. You know, death from suicide is between 20 and 35 years of age, uh, number one cause of death. So coffee drinkers have a low risk of dying from suicide. Now, is it the coffee? Is it that when they drink the coffee, they're drinking it with a friend? Is it the social interaction? We don't really know that, but it does lower the risk. Now, all of the different facts about coffee, what are the ones that you say will help the, the person live a healthy, happy life? All the facts. I think it has so many benefits. And uh, you live longer, you have less inflammation, um, that they all add up. Uh, it's not one particular. You know, a lot of people have liver disease or a family history of alcoholism. You know, the strongest biological determinant of alcoholism is having a biological parent who is an alcoholic. And we learned this from studies in Denmark, where they have a national adoption registry. 
So if a kid is adopted by alcoholic parents, new parents, but both biological parents were not drinkers, he or she has a low risk of becoming an alcoholic. But if one of the biological parents was an alcoholic and they're now adopted into a family where they're teetotalers, they still have a high risk of developing alcoholic alcoholism and then all its consequences. Now, the story with coffee and alcoholism, uh, alcoholic cirrhosis is absolutely stunning. As a liver expert, I and many of my colleagues were totally mystified for decades. How come there are some people who drink a pint of whiskey a day or a liter of wine a day or two six packs of beer a day for 25 years? And at the end, 20% become cirrhotic. 20%? What happened to the other 80%? Oh, they have probably good genes. Maybe they metabolize alcohol differently. Turns out those are the people drinking coffee. Art Klatsky published a paper <coughs> looking at 123,000 individuals. If you drink that much alcohol and one cup of regular coffee, 20% reduction in alcoholic cirrhosis, two cups, 40%, four cups, 80%, five cups, you won't give it. Get it. It's not a license to drink a lot and drink coffee because you still get Korsakoff psychosis, cardiomyopathy, pancreatitis, kill people on the road, get divorced, get fired from your job, but it protects the liver. It's pretty astounding. I've yet to see a patient with alcoholic cirrhosis who drank four or five cups of coffee. They don't drink coffee. Now, you ended the book with some coffee quotes. What's your yeah. favorite coffee quote? There's so many good ones. Um, one of them is actually mine. <laughs> it says, what is BC and AD? And people say before Christ and a Domini. No, no, no. BC is before coffee and AD is after double espresso. <laughs> I, I saw one uh, that's not in the book because I went to this coffee shop close to where I live. A very, very good coffee. And I was sitting having a cup of coffee with a friend, having a meeting. And right next to me on the wall was a sign. Coffee the foundation of consciousness. <laughs> Coffee is the foundation of consciousness. Another one said, uh, drink coffee. You can sleep when you're dead. So there are all kinds of things. <laughs> A lot of quotes. Well, I have enjoyed our conversation and happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you have a great birthday. But tell us, what's the next project you're working on? So, you know, believe it or not, during COVID, because I was grounded, COVID lockdown, previously I'd been to 10 countries. I travel a lot. I give a lot of talks uh, <clears throat> all over the world, keynotes. Um, I reached out to three colleagues. On my own, I finished the coffee book, Coffee, the Magical Elixir, Facts That Will Astound and Perk You Up. And then with three colleagues, I wrote three books. It would have taken me six or eight years to write four books, all done in 16 months. Three books are published. The fourth is with a publisher, with a literary agent in New York, and she sent it to 25 publishers. So the first one was Coffee, the Magical Elixir, Facts That Will Astound and Perk You Up. 
Then I wrote a book with my brilliant colleague, Martin Abramson, and it's called Conquer Your Diabetes, Prevention, Controlled Remission. And then a third book with a new friend, Rick Nahera, in California, whom I met four years ago. We became good friends. And he's a brilliant writer, producer, actor. His plays have performed on Broadway, Latina Logs. And uh, he said, I want to work with you. I want to work with you. I said, okay, let's write a book. And we wrote a book called Ignite the Fire Within, Master Your Speaking and Writing, How We Can All Be Better Speakers and Writers. And I think the key is storytelling. You know, Steve Jobs once said, storytellers are the most powerful people in the world. It's rooted in our DNA. You go and see an old cave painting, 5,000 years old, and it's a woman cooking food, children sitting in a semicircle, husband is getting the firewood, and the grandfather is telling them stories. We're all captivated by stories, and we can all get better at being storytellers. So one of the talks I give is called How to Give a Good TED Talk. What are the principles of good public speaking? And I teach it at Harvard. I teach it at UMass to medical students. And I'm always constantly striving to improve my own talks. There's a wonderful book by Miguel Ruiz uh, based on ancient Toltec wisdom. And it's called The Four Agreements. The four agreements we make with ourselves. And the first one is always be impeccable with your word. Number two is don't take things personally. Three is don't make assumptions. We all make assumptions. You know, I go into a restaurant, I see a guy, he's looking 100 pounds overweight, and suddenly his food arises, double cheeseburger with a frap and french fries. I'm making a judgment. What's he doing? Maybe he lost 100 pounds. Right? Maybe his wife died three days ago. This is comfort food for him. Who am I? Should not make it. We all do it. I catch myself now after reading the book. And the fourth one blew me away. Said, always do your best. I give 100 talks a year, and I'd go and sit with the AV guy 15 minutes before. Click, 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 click. Okay, I'm all set. Now, after that book I read some years ago, I said, really? Yeah, you got a standing ovation when you gave that talk last time, but what? You're getting cocky. You're getting arrogant. You're getting pompous. Improve the talk. Now I look at the slides a week before, and I can always find ways to improve it. Tell another story, embellish it, change the slide, change the font. We can always do better. It's an amazing little paperback. He was an Oprah twice. It sold like 10 million copies, translated into 50 languages. Small book. The Four Agreements. So I'm always reading and I'm, I'm writing and I'm developing new talks. I'm giving a keynote next month in Chicago and I can give one of my canned talks, you know, that I've given on leadership and happiness and microbiome. But I like challenges and I want to create new stuff. So I said, you know what? Uh, I'll give a keynote. I'll call it a look at the rear view mirror and a peek ahead. So I'm going to talk about four or five big stories that happened in medicine in the last quarter century. And then I'm going to talk about what's going to play out in the next 10 years. Bigger stories in medicine. And those are artificial intelligence, microbiome, CRISPR and gene editing, messenger RNA, the basis for the COVID vaccines, 
And believe it or not, the psychedelic revolution, mushrooms, ketamine, there's amazing research now coming out. You were talking about suicide. There are people with serious depression. They don't respond to the antidepressant medication. What do we do? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Shock. Electroconvulsive therapy. It turns out ketamine, which was developed as a horse tranquilizer, and it's used in pediatric anesthesia. Four or five treatments with IV ketamine. Now there's even a nasal form spray and a lozenge. The person is no longer depressed. There's neuroplasticity. There's a story of a young man who was on the verge of hurting himself. He gets four or five treatments of ketamine. He's totally different. He's a very good hockey player. He says to his fiancée, I've hired the skating rink between four and six in the morning tomorrow. Come with the video camera and record me. So he's skating and she's recording. They send it to talent scouts. Next thing, he's playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, professional hockey. The guy on the verge of suicide. So this is a big story. And uh, the biggest academic centers, Columbia Presbyterian, New York, Harvard Medical School, are now doing research on ketamine, microdosing with mushrooms. There are many different things. You know, in the 70s, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert at Harvard were using LSD and giving it to the students, and they were thrown out. Now it's seeing a resurgence. Because now we can study by using functional MRI. We can measure blood levels of oxytocin, endorphins, the happy molecules. We can measure and see what's happening. So it's not only subjective, it's not only people saying, oh, I'm happy, I'm creative. You know? and so those are the five big stories. So that's a new talk I've developed. So I keep busy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting